The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The B-Side for episode 1649 of our national conversation about conversations about race. Sorry to burst your bubble. I'm Anna Holmes here with Rebecca Carroll, critic at large for the LA Times and editor of special projects at WNYC. Welcome back, Rebecca. Nice to be here. And joining us from D.C. is Jamel Bowie, chief political correspondent at Slate.com and now one of the hosts of the great podcast, Trumpcast. You should all be listening to it. Glad to have you back, Jamel. Glad to be here. And, okay, so on our last episode, which I wasn't actually hosting, (laughs) we discussed informational, they, they discussed informational bubbles and whether we can bust out of them or when that's even a desirable thing. And, of course, we wanted you, the listeners, to weigh in. So here's our producer, A.C. Valdez, with some of what you all had to say. So uh, I'm going to start off with this email that we got from Sarah in Portland regarding tech and information identity bubbles. As you mentioned, technology has been a bubble enabler with sites like Google and Facebook discovering our leanings and reinforcing them. Other sites like Reddit allow us to silo ourselves with like-minded people, but one social media site stands apart, Twitter. In fact, one of the things that makes Twitter a hostile place for women and minorities is that anyone can talk to anyone else. Is Twitter bursting bubbles in a good way? If we get out of our bubbles and talk to each other online, will it always mean harassment? To me, we need a new social media platform where we discover or are assigned non-bubble buddies whose life story and beliefs we get to know long term. Thank you for your show, Sarah from Portland, which she footnotes has a pretty depressing history of racism. Wait, wait. She has a history of racism? No, Portland. No, Portland. Oh, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, that would be a, history of that would be a step in the right direction, though, yeah. you know, owning up. Well, there was a guy who called in the, the other week who was, he said he was a recovering white supremacist, but he didn't sound very, very, very recovering to, to oh, the rest okay. of us. Um, yeah, I don't know that you can ask for a social media platform to, to help you with a bubble buddy. Like, just go out. Yeah, into the world. right. Go into the world. <laughs> like, because the, Make because, a new friend. Yeah. I mean, the reason that Twitter it has become... I mean, I personally am one of these people that, that takes great heart in Twitter in terms of its community. I really don't pay attention to mostly to the, the trolls and the stupidity and the randos or whatnot. I really find a, a great deal of community there. That said, the reason that it has become a dangerous place is because people just make shit up and, and can be as vile as they want to be and dishonest as they want to be. And cowardly is what it is to me. So even if you were to create an entirely different social media, you know, you're still behind a keyboard. You're still not, you know, your real self. And so I feel like exactly what Anna said, like, go out in the world and be with actual humans. Yeah. Jamel, (laughs) what do you think about Twitter? Or what do you think about the, the listeners' suggestion and thoughts about Twitter and other platforms? <laughs> I think asking for some way to break you know, epistemic bubbles on Twitter is sort of that's the, the platform is just not designed for it. It's just not going to happen. Even if you follow people with whom you disagree, with whom you have different perspectives, so on and so forth, it's just not built for intimacy. It's not built for person to person contact. You can't, it's hard to make meaningful connections. Even people, there are people on Twitter who I talk to on the regular who I like and enjoy, and I don't really know anything about them on a very fundamental level. So I just, I think, I think it's just the wrong ask. From my, you know, from my point of view, Twitter is a place where if you have, you know, a small enough following, if you make a small footprint, you can have interesting conversations. Um, You can 
become a part of interesting, um, maybe even to some extent enriching communities. Mm -hmm. uh, if you are in media Twitter, you can beef with your colleagues, which is what people like to do on media Twitter. <laughs> um, uh, but I don't think, I think the kind of meaningful connection, the kind of getting past bubbles that is important uh, is something that just has to, you ha it has to be done in real life. It has to be done um, face to face and it has to be done in a context in, in some sort of context, I think, where you have a shared goal. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I don't know. I mean, those kind of contexts don't really exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, and to, to the extent they do, they happen in communities where people tend to, you know, they, they share a similar perspective. So I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm both, I'm both, especially since I've been thinking about kind of like, what does life look like in the Trump era? I, I, I both am in this place where I think that people's focus should actually become more local and localized mm -hmm. and spending more time in their communities. And through that community work, you end up um, doing the work of, of resistance, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, I, I am feeling a bit down on just the ability of people to see each other as full persons, you know, worthy of, of, of dignity. And, and maybe that's just, that might just be the function of the fact that like my, uh, my online life has begun to seep into my real life and that like it is, you do, it is hard to completely ignore the fact that people scream terrible things at you on a regular basis. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's move on to this one, uh, from Marika. Hi, my name is Marika and a 22-year-old African-American woman currently living and working in D.C. I just discovered your podcast last week and the episode I listened to was episode 1645, Trying to Make Sense. This was our just post-election right. episode. Right. I'm currently listening to episode 9, Comedy Trump's Fragility, and I'm hearing a thoughtful discussion of the election where Trump's candidacy and electoral future are minimized at best and mocked at worst. I don't criticize the panelists for this because I think most people who weren't supporters of the president-elect did the exact same thing. My question to you all is, now that we're in a post-election mindset, whether you feel like there are signs that you missed or ignored, which then allowed you to minimize his candidacy and the sentiments that he clearly appealed to within the electorate. So, that's from Marie. Uh, were there signs that we missed? Um, in, okay. in Trump's okay. candidacy. Um, I mean... I think that the signs were pretty clear and pretty hard to miss. I think that's precisely why we dismissed them because they were so mm -hmm. egregious mm -hmm. um, that it seemed almost absurd. Right. Yeah. I mean, perhaps I missed the signs that people would embrace him despite those things. But th that said, well, I don't consider myself to be a member of the press right now because I'm just not, I'm not doing journalism right now. I don't mean literally in this room. I mean, in general. <laughs> and, and so I'm going to like conveniently take myself out of the, out of the journalism profession right now, because I think there were signs or there were things that the press, that the political press missed. I think the political press in many ways did a horrible job. Jamel accepted. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, but I, I mean, yes, but yes, of course we missed something, but I don't know what that thing was. It wasn't like I, I, I thought that, we, we had to have missed something because it came as a surprise that he won to me that said yeah, I mean, yeah part of the problem here is that if you said 
that Trump was going to win and you based it on things like crowd size or lawn signs or something like that, you would have been ridiculed for being dumb and Mm -hmm. rightfully so Mm -hmm. because that just flies in the face of what we know about elections. Like Trump won – he won eight, a net, net 80,000 votes between three states. It's sort of like almost random, yeah. right? Like it's – and it's – it's um, Jesus. Yeah. It's – yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it's difficult to say like, oh, were there signs that you should have paid attention? Well, what, were the, what, what would those signs have been? Would they have been national polling leads? Well, those had Clinton ahead. Would mm-hmm. they have been swing state polling leads? Well, those had Clinton ahead. I think if there's anything that you should – I think I think the thing – I think the thing that people miss, and I include myself in this, is that they didn't take the uncertainty of the polls seriously enough. Mm. There were large numbers of undecided voters, more than usual, and taking the that uncertainty enough seriously enough would have at least opened up the space for recognizing that this was a very plausible outcome. But if you just if you just looked at the numbers, if you looked at the behavior of the campaigns, even um, you would have come away with the conclusion that most people have, which is that Clinton is probably going to win this. So I, I think I think I think I, I tend to think the people sort of saying, "Oh, you know, the press didn't didn't predict this, so they're they're obviously failures," is a missing how statistics work mm-hmm, generally, mm-hmm. but also just like that's a really unfair assessment because like. To to look at the to look at the evidence and say November first and say oh Trump's going to win would be to ignore the ignore the evidence mm-hmm. to to ignore what what your lying eyes were telling you. Well, it's less about maybe it's less about how the press or some members of the press interpreted um, data and more about the questions that they didn't ask or the things they skirted over mm-hmm. in their coverage of both candidates would be my. At least where I'm trying to kind of land my criticism, it isn't that 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 they, that they should have read polls differently, or. But also, if those signs had been reported or covered, whose mind would we be changing? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, well, there's like there's been a lot of criticism of the political press for focusing a lot on Hillary's emails, right? Yes. I, I'm not saying it would have changed anybody's mind, but like, right. did they give a disproportionate yes. amount of attention of to? Okay, of yeah. course. Yeah. But I think what I heard in that question was if you had reported that, you know, people in in small towns, white people, white working class in small towns are going to vote for Trump, mm-hmm. they still would have voted for Trump. Those... Right. And, and that that wouldn't have helped you predict the outcome. Right. Like it does. It doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think I think I think the big press failure was not reporting on Trump like he might actually be president. I think there was an implicit assumption among the press like Clinton would be president, and so why would you even bother cover? Like she was covered like she was an incumbent, and Trump was covered gotcha. like he wasn't going to win. Yeah, like, like like the New York Times reporter who <laughs> probably will never live this down, who like was what was like on on camera laughing when Trump was when it, there was a discussion. Whatever, it was from yeah. years ago. I'll let let that go for now. Okay, <laughs> thanks for weighing in, listeners. We have a phone number, so give us a call. The number is six one two eight 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 R A C E. Of course, if you feel like writing, you can still email us or send us a voice memo. I love voice memos. The address is showaboutrace at gmail.com. Hang in there. The main episode is dropping soon. 